I probably still consider plyometrics as strength training. It's just we're training, you know, your fast twitch fibers and we're training your strength in very, very short time periods. But I still consider it as relatively non-specific, you know, strength training compared to whatever the action of the sport is. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about coaching and programming true plyometrics. So it's Eamon Flanagan, who's been on the podcast before, but we've discussed plyometrics in general in previous episodes, but this one is about the high-end, more intense actions that are the true plyometrics. So Eamon goes into how we categorize these and the importance of preparing athletes for this type of training, progressing from lower to higher intensity exercises and also building in volume and understanding volume when it comes to the programming of these exercises. We also have a little chat around forefoot and flat foot landings and the difference that can make and how we can manipulate both of those in our programming decisions. So if you're interested in plyometrics and utilizing these in both fit and rehabbing athletes, this episode will be one for you. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? So for pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximise athletic potential like never before. Widely used by top flight rugby, football, cricket and motorsports teams already in post-game changing rooms, away game travel, hotels or at home. Hytro has proven that creating their simple and effective wearables allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. To find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge, visit hytro.com or email the team at teamsales at hytro.com. Also sponsoring this podcast is Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about VALD, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. So without further ado, over to the episode with Eamon. Eamon Flanagan, thank you for joining me again. It's been a, it's been a long time virtually, not so long in person, which is good, but um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, my pleasure. Always good to talk. Always enjoy your chats. And you gave me a free t-shirt on, so you, you own me, basically. <laughs> people love a free t-shirt. Yeah. Actually, yeah, it's a, it goes very yeah, far. Yeah, people love a free t-shirt. Um, it's been a while. 
So I think it'd be best to kick off and do a bit of a quick rundown of, of your background, what you're doing now. Yeah, so right now I am, and, and for the last, gosh, I think seven, eight years now, I've been the lead uh, of the strength and conditioning department at the Support Ireland Institute, where we look after um, the, the basically our Olympic and Paralympic uh, athletes across all of Ireland's high-performance sports, or most of Ireland's high-performance sports in, in an Olympic and Paralympic context. So yeah, I've been I've been at, at our Institute of Sport for just about eight years, and before that, I had about eight to ten years in high level amateur and then professional rugby at Edinburgh Rugby with the Irish Rugby Football Union, um, part time. You know, when I was starting off as an early career practitioner, part time with teams like Munster and club teams in Ireland. So that's kind of the, the the strength and conditioning, you know, practitioner journey that I've had, and I I suppose I had a background in in research at the beginning of that journey journey also, where I did my my PhD at the University of Limerick, and it was mostly probably in the area of stretch shortening cycle function. But while we looked at anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction uh, specifically, most of my interest in the project was around plyometrics stretch shortening cycle function and you know really how we how we think about that and how we train it and how we assess it why was that an interest what was the kind of kickoff of that for you yeah i guess um you know i was when i was doing my undergraduate in the university of limerick um a friend of mine and a colleague at times uh, dr tom cummins um, who worked for Munster Rugby at the time, he was actually doing his PhD as an embedded team member with Munster Rugby. This is back in, I guess, 2003, 2004. And he was doing his, his PhD in the era of complex training, you know, you know, pairing up heavy resistance training with plyometric exercise. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Like imagine being embedded with like one of the best rugby teams in Europe at that time, the best rugby team in Europe and doing applied research like that. Uh, I just thought it was amazing. I wanted to do a project very similar to that, um, but we didn't get funding for it because <laughs> it was probably focused on that niche of elite athletes with very, very limited, uh, I would say application to the wider public. So in the end, my supervisor and I, we took our, we took the direction into more of a generally applicable topic. Again, ACL injury and and things like that. But I think for me, the interest was always in the applied training principles of plyometrics and high power training modalities. So there's a full disclosure before we go any further. I think is now a good time. We've got a course coming that we recorded just before Christmas, which I'm super excited about, and I feel like I've been stalking you about semi about for quite a long time so it was it was great to get you over in Leeds and get the course uh, get the course filmed so we're going to dive into a few of the areas that you spoke about on the course I hate to put a time frame on this but it'll probably be the I don't know start of the second quarter of the year um so in the spring but that gives us plenty of time to um well today gives us plenty of time to dive into some of them some of them uh topics but the the area of the um, of the course was plyometrics, but not just plyometrics and jump training, which is probably where I went down first when I approached you. But it kind of moved down the true plyometrics versus the rest of the kind of jump training that often gets bundled together. So first off, what are true plyometrics to you? 
Yeah, so I guess maybe it's worth describing why we ended up in that direction with the course. And ultimately, it's it's a it's a short course compared to let's say the the great stuff that Alex Natera has put out with you, which is a a big meaty five six seven hour um um feast of information. This is much this is much shorter. And I think ultimately, when people talk about plyometrics, depending on who you're speaking to, they might be speaking two different things. They might be talking about what we might call jump training. They might be talking about what. You know, Furkashansky or Smithbleicher means when they say plyometrics, it's like a lot of topics in SNC. Um, it can be sometimes a little bit of a mess in terms of definitions and clarity around what we're what we actually mean when we say a word like plyometrics. So again, with it being a short course, we probably spent most of our time on the course, but not all of it, in that area of you know what we might call kind of high impact you know, true plyometrics, which in my mind probably means, I think sometimes people might delineate that based on contact times or coupling times, you know, and I've spoken about this a lot, fast stretch shortening cycles or slow stretch shortening cycles, you know, contact times of less than 200 milliseconds or, or more than 200 milliseconds. And it's probably a little bit more granular than that. So I guess when you mentioned that term, true plyometrics, that's where in the course I'd probably lean on some of Erkoshansky's definitions um, mostly. And I guess in terms of some of his frameworks, you know, on, on one side you probably have what they might describe as like non-impact modalities that might be your slow stretch shortening cycle you know jump training box jumps vertical jumps um, tend to be maybe maximal but slow stretch shortening cycle activities and on the other side that's where you probably have your impact plyometrics which again i think they they tend to be maximal or near maximal efforts they have a very um, they have a very uh, definitive like impact or collision with the ground um, you know they have very short contact times um, and and they tend to, to follow I guess what you could call like a plyometric cycle of um, of arrival or preparation that might be falling from a from a box for drop jumps it might be arriving toward the ground when you're bounding so you have your arrival you have your impact where you actually impact the ground and the ground almost blocks you and stops you before you go into your amortization phase which is you know um, you know effectively what brings out the stretch reflex and then you follow that into your rebound phase where you get that release of elastic energy, you get that little bit of concentric push off the ground, and then you go into your next, you know, you might call it your rebound phase, but it's basically your next flight phase before you land or before you do the next activity if it's bounding or repeated jumping. So I guess those true plyometrics tend to be high intensity, they tend to be short ground contact times, and they tend to have, again, those very definitive phases of, you know, arrival, impact, amortization, and, and rebound. Um, and so they tend to be the, the high impact activities we think about when we see people bounding, hopping for distance, doing drop jumps, doing repeat hurdle jumps. And again, I think in, in our space, in our industry, sometimes all those plyometrics can, can all get bundled, all those jumping activities um, can all get bundled into the same category. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It just depends on how you want to define something. Um, but there's a lot in that. You know, and I think in the course, we've probably just deliberately focused on those 
types of exercises that probably fall more within the true plyometric category. Because again, for me, the, the exercises and the activities that fall within that category they're the ones that are really very unique. They're the ones where you're probably getting unique training adaptations that are very difficult to get in the weight room. They're very difficult to get with medicine balls or other other training tools. And so they are the very high-powered, high-speed, you know, I would say reactive strength-dependent activities that provide some really unique training adaptation, some really unique, you know, preferential strengthening of fast twitch muscle fibers that's very difficult to get anywhere else. And if we'd have not gone down that route, we'd have been there all day. Oh, well, we were there all weekend. Yeah, pretty exactly. All weekend. exactly. So let's focus on the stuff that actually, um, it's it, you know, I say it's high powered and has some unique training adaptations. It's also difficult, like it's difficult stuff to coach and it's difficult stuff to organize in safe, effective progressions and hierarchies. Whereas I think most people are pretty comfortable programming box jumps, you know, counter movement jumps, relatively low impact activities that you tend to kind of program in similar rep ranges and with similar methods that you do your kind of strength or power work in the weight room anyway. Do you think people get to the, or try to get their athletes the true plyometrics quicker than they maybe should do because it's sexier, it's... Um... Um, you know. I, I think it kind of depends, really. Um, good question. Um, I think, it, for me, it fundamentally comes down to what the athlete is prepared to and where they've been and what they're ready for and what adaptations or what positive influence you're hoping to have. Um, you know, we're all kind of familiar with those maybe cliché heuristics of, oh, you know, you must squat two times body weight before you do X, Y, and Z. And I don't think those rules necessarily apply because in some cases you could work with athletes who have maybe extensive track and field, you know, athletics backgrounds, and they would be very well prepared and very well skilled in activities like skipping, hopping, bounding, you know, and they're safe and effective tools to use with those athletes. Um, you'll get other athletes with very high levels of strength because of what they've chosen to do or what they've been exposed to in their their in their training history, um, but might they might be very poorly prepared for high threshold, high impact plyometrics because they've had little exposure to that type of training modality. So I think the athlete context is, is really important in terms of what they've been exposed to and what, you know, from a foundational training history and a foundational movement competency, what are they actually prepared and ready for? I think that's one thing. I think the other piece is that, you know, the, the, there can be an element sometimes of you maybe don't need to use some of these methods until you know you've tapped you've 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 already um utilized the the, the low-hanging fruit of building basic levels of strength building basic you know tissue tolerance building basic basic fitness characteristics and so i think there's an element there where sometimes you, you can try and get to the sexy stuff first when there's actually opportunity um, to get pretty easy training returns from simple strength training or simple you know gym-based power training uh, with athletes who are earlier in their development but like anything you you know sometimes when you need to use a tool you want to already know how to use that tool so i think for an athlete you know plyometrics may not be the main thing at this point in time but it's always worth building up 
the the exposure to these types of activities and um, so that when you want to use that tool at a high level the athlete has been exposed to it they know the techniques and um, and they're able to implement it when they need it and again i think a lot of time let's say with you know verkashansky and um, some of these methods people will think about plyometrics as solely being the the shock methods you know the the drop jumps from high from high heights or, or depth jumps from high heights but again you know when you look at some of the uh, verkashansky frameworks and um, you know that there's a special place for submaximal you know plyometrics what we might call extensive type work there's there's a special place for the the true plyometrics that we've spoken about but even that is delineated into you know more general work again it might be your, your drop jumps again quite non-specific but really focused on moving the dial on those physical qualities and then also you know there's a special place for your functional plyometrics which might be you know i might think of them as maybe transfer to training exercises you know for a sprinter it might be might be bounding you know what i mean for for, for a um for uh, a gymnast it might be drop jumping or landings from very high heights of some kind so again even within that category of plyometrics there, there are different reasons that you might use it and different approaches that you might take a little follow-up question to that so the two times body weight kind of introduction to that or the, the cutoff is often kind of ridiculed as like where did someone pluck that from but is there anything like that that you would think is more appropriate as a bit of a a general tick box to say that i think that athlete is ready or is that just too simplistic and we shouldn't even be thinking in that in that region i think to put like a hard and fast number on it or threshold on it it's probably a bit bit too easy or a bit too simplistic because ultimately even when we talk about a back squat like you know we all know all back squats are not created equal in terms of their depth or their tempo or you know whatever so I think that probably is a little bit oversimplistic but again you know maybe maybe the principle to which that hints at is just this idea that you know if you have a, a young developing athlete uh, and we all know you know that actually if a young development athlete and you get them in the weight room for the first couple of years you know it's pretty easy to make relatively significant gains in strength without even putting the athlete under too much you know physical stress from session to session so i think maybe what those types of principles hint at a little bit is the idea that like save those you know high powered high return exercises for when you need them for when the gains for when the athletic development is beginning to get into that plateau stage and it's a little bit harder to move the dial you know if you've exposed your young athletes who are still developing physically who haven't laid down a, a maturity in terms of their strength levels their muscle size their their exercise technique if you're exposing them to high hurdle jumps or drop jumps you probably get some training return from that like you it, it's it's you're going to get some changes in physical quality in return to that and in return from that no doubt but you know in four or five years time when they're hitting that stage of kind of diminishing returns from their training those tools perhaps could have had a more potent influence and you've almost used them up when you wanted to rather than when you needed to perfect you mentioned a couple of categories there how do you how do you categorize your plyometrics? Um, true plyometrics. 
Yeah, okay. I guess um, well, I guess you can ca- categorize them based on exercise type for starters. And again, like I said, in a, in a lot of SNC world, there's ambiguity and there's a lack of clarity around around exercise types. That's the first way you can categorize them. And the way I would, pro- if I was trying to keep things really simple, I would think about probably four categories: jumps, hops bounds and skips I probably should have put them in a different order but let's say um, you know jumps skips uh, bounds and hops and again jumps you know we're taking off on two feet and we're landing or we're rebounding on two feet with skips you know we're taking off on one foot and we have that kind of short you know short long rhythmic transfer from one foot to another and when we're doing bounding we're, we're we're taking off on one leg we're landing on the other leg when we're doing hopping works you know again it's unilateral but it's the same leg you know boom 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 we're staying on the right leg for all the repetitions so that's one way to categorize and there probably is a is a at a very basic level there's probably an intensification across those levels you know from jumps to skips to 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 bounds to hops at a very basic level obviously it depends what way you do them and and everything so that's probably the first way i would categorize them and again if we think about how we implement that that's categorizing the exercises if we think about how we implement the training and then we might categorize this you know which is pretty standard now via extensive or intensive and again you know extensive work tends to be it might be the same exercises you might do repeat hurdle jumps you might do pogo jumps on the spot you might do single leg hopping but you know in your extensive phase they may not be true plyometrics because they're not those near maximum maximal or near maximal efforts but they may be the same exercise categories but again in the extensive type work and um, we tend to obviously dial down the intensity increase the volume we work maybe more on kind of rhythm uh, we, we we get a lot of repetition so it's a good environment to coach within and on the intensive side that's where we're dialing up the the intensity that's where we're at near maximal or maximal level that is where we are a little bit more focused on output rather than I mean we're still focused on technique but we might be a little bit more focused on output rather than the technical issues so again extensive versus intensive is another way that we could we could uh, categorize um, how we're applying the exercises and then I guess the 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 last way you might categorize is, is is based on intensity, you know, and actually what do we feel is the intensity of the the exercises, and we might put them into categories or groups based on those those our best guess or our perception of the relative intensity of these exercises. I remember speaking to Mark Jarvis in the very early days of the of the, the podcast because I'm sure he did his. PhD in this area I can't remember yeah yeah that seems that seems yeah. to ring a bell and we were talking about understanding the intensity of plyometrics I'll be honest it's eight years ago I can't remember what he said but I'd just like to I'd like to get your I do <laughs> <laughs> you do, yeah, I do, you remember do. What um what's your idea of how you book it the intensity of these type of exercises um, well let's go back to Mark first of all because I think one of the big takeaways I had from that podcast, I and I don't the, know if this was PhD. Doing, by the way, and <laughs> um, one of my big takeaways from that was not. I, I don't know if this was PhD work or if this was just cool stuff he was messing around with, you know, in his training environment. But 
and this is definitely that's something that, that fits into my philosophy now is, you know, we have this idea that, um, you know, if, if you and I both do a bench press at 90 kilos and are, we both have the same relative strength, that probably has a similar effect on us. But he, he made the really interesting observation that like, let's say you and I both come off a 40 centimeter box for a drop jump. We might make the assumption if we were the same body weight and we're doing it on the same surface, we might make the same assumption that that's the same relative intensity for both of us. But Mark's, again, my big takeaway from, from, from Mark's podcast was actually a lot of the time it's the really talented athletes, the fast twitch animals, the real reactive strength, elastic athletes. Like, like they me can and just you. do a whole. Similar to me and you. Like, like, like you, yeah, not like me, not like me, like you. And they can just do something different in these types of activities. They can put 10 times body weight into the ground in 180 milliseconds and. I can't. And so again, we think, oh, this athlete is well prepared. They're uh, they're explosive, elastic. They've got really good RSI scores. So they're more able for plyometrics than somebody else. And there may be an element of truth in that, but also you need to have that consideration that they can do something that ordinary folk can't do. And this exercise represents a really, um, an outlier in terms of the amount of intensity that these special athletes can produce in these types of exercises. So I guess then you've got to think about, okay, well, when we think about, you still need a framework to work from. And I think what I take from Mark is that, you know, the athlete that's in front of you needs to be one of your moderating factors when you're thinking about what exercise will I do? How much volume of that exercise will I do? How often will I do it, etc. But you still need a framework to start from where, you know, you can think about, okay, well, what is actually a higher intensity exercise than another? So I guess, you know, there's no gold standard study. There's no perfect study that takes 100 plyometric exercises, measures them all and puts them in a perfect hierarchy. That doesn't exist. There's a few that have done it with some exercises, but not others. And they've used different ways of measuring, blah, blah, blah. But there's, there's no perfect standard. So you've got to kind of just use, you know, common sense. And you've got to use, I think, just general heuristics to lead you in the direction of organizing your plyometric categories. Um, and so uh, when we talk about plyometric intensity, I think in, again, in SNC land, a lot of the time we think about actually, well, how much stress does the exercise place on the muscle, the connective tissue, the joints involved in the action? That's one way of thinking about it. From a purely, probably like Newtonian physics point of view, you can think about it as, you know, the, what is the momentum of the body right before it hits the ground? Do you know what I mean? So again, how far have they fallen? What's the mass of the object? That's the other way of thinking about it. Um, and so I think in terms of those heuristics, um, two things to start with. Intent. Obviously, if I go 80% on a drop jump or I go 100% on the drop jump, I'm going to produce a lot more force in a shorter time period when my intent is maximal. Uh, and surface matters. If I'm on a, a hard, stiff surface, I'll probably get a, I may get a better performance or I may get more force in a shorter time period. But obviously that can come at a cost of the amount of stress we place on the, the connective tissue, the, the joints, etc. And um, so if we assume that intent and the surface is standardized, you know, it's not, but if we assume that it was, well, then again, the way I would think about those exercise kind of hierarchies would be, um, again, short contact times versus long, long contact times or fast stretch shortening cycle versus slow. Your faster activities will tend to have 
more force or similar levels of force in much shorter time periods, more intense. Um, single leg versus double leg activities will tend to be a higher level of intensity or intensification because you're taking that same level of impact force through a single limb, not shared across both limbs. Um, there's a little bit of research from people like uh, Dr. Bill Eben that talks about um, what the leg does before ground impact. So if you have like rapid extension of the leg before ground impact, it tends to spike up ground contact forces. So think about things like tuck jumps, uh, pike jumps, um, repeat hurdle jumps where you have this kind of tucking, but then this rapid extension of the leg into the ground, that tends to, to peak. Um, ground contact forces compared to, let's say, pogo jumping where the legs remain extended um, before ground contact. Um, the height of arrival, you could call it, or, or the drop height and drop jumps, that's going to dictate intensity. Obviously, if I step and fall from 60 centimeters or I step and fall from 30 centimeters, the 60 centimeter drop jump will have a much higher impact momentum it'll drive up intensity. And then I would also consider maybe more horizontally orientated plyometrics as potentially having a little bit more of a, probably a, 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 an increase in ground react, in, an increase in joint reaction force at the knee that's probably worth considering as well, where I'd probably, you know, the greater the horizontal component, the more I would consider that a, a, an intensification of the same exercise if it was done with a more vertical bias. So you got these kind of six or seven heuristics and for me then that probably just broadly, this is going to be overlap and it's going to be messy and it's not going to be perfect, but broadly that probably helps me like bucket exercises maybe into three or four tiers, you know, and at the lowest tier you probably have like submaximal exercises and you have maybe jumps up to targets that could be up steps or up boxes where because you're jumping up you're landing from a very small height gravity isn't acting on you for very long and um, you have a lower impact momentum you know my second tier as we work up the kind of the tiering of intensification that might be more in place jumps and it might be submaximal skips and bounds some of those single leg activities or it might be in place jumps like pogo jumps on the spot for example and um, as we move up the hierarchy when we get to maybe the third tier that might be uh, that might be um, some of those in place jumps but that has those kind of forceful leg excursions we talked about tuck variations or hurdle variations it might be you know some repeat actions like like skipping and uh, maybe we're getting to bounding in this tier and then at our highest tier that's probably where we're looking at you know very high intensity hopping might be where we're looking at our drop jump activities and again a lot of our single leg variant of drop jumps or single leg hops and bounds uh, would be possibly in that tier as well so again we have these these kind of common sense heuristics where I think if, you know, tick, 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 if all these things are in play, it's probably pretty high intensity. And if tick, 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 none of these things are in play, it's probably low intensity. So you kind of build up your little checklist in your coaching mind uh, and that can help you maybe, for me, I would bucket into maybe four different categories roughly. 
So we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Eamon. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we dive deeper into understanding volume and intensity of these true plyometric exercises. We also have a little chat around forefoot versus flat foot landings and how we can manipulate both of those depending on our outcome goals. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30 day free trial. Also, sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade. With the addition of the new Icon X Rack Range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website, play.us. That's P-L-A-E dot U-S. And now back to the episode with Eamon. How does foot placement and I suppose the cueing from the coach of foot placement, how does that affect intensity? How does that affect uh, focus when it comes to these true parametrics? I think as a starting point, I'd say that's probably an area I don't have a high degree of certainty about. And I'm willing to, it's probably something I'm reflecting on and probably, probably we we did address in the course, but I'd probably continue to reflect on. Um, If you look at some of the research, um, there's maybe from what I can see, three or four half decent studies out there. And they look at things like forefoot placement versus flat foot placement, or the athlete's preferred foot placement in plyometric activities like drop jumps uh, or hurdle jumps. So again, usually what these types of studies do is they, they, they set up a jumping activity, they measure you know joint reaction forces or ground reaction forces, and they cue the athlete to perform them as you please, preferred, they cue the athlete to perform them on with a forefoot landing, or they cue the athlete to perform with more of a, a, a leading with the heel or a flat foot landing. If you look again, maybe through like the just the 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 maybe a simplistic SNC coach lens, if you look at a lot of those studies, a lot of them will show that the forefoot landing, so that's kind of landing on the ball of the foot with the, the heel probably elevated and off the ground, that tends to have shorter contact times, higher rates of force development, might be a little bit more uh, appropriate for you know your fast force application. So straight away as an SNC coach, that can be really attractive. That can be like, oh, that's what I want to do. I like RFD, I like short contact times. This sounds good to me, I'll go in that direction. Couple of problems with these studies. First of all, they tend to be um, cross-sectional studies. So again, you're cueing an athlete in a particular way, 
and you're observing the immediate outcome from that as opposed to coaching an athlete a particular way for six weeks, 12 weeks, six months, six years and observing what the outcome of that is. Um, a lot of these studies as well, again, they look at those kind of ground reaction forces, contact times, the stuff that's probably instantly easy, relatively easy to measure. They may not look at what the, what the shin is doing during that short contact time. They may not look at like the relative distribution of force through the foot. And so I think while, while that approach is, uh, let's say, attractive at a basic level, um, ultimately with plyometrics, it, I, I often still consider, I probably still consider plyometrics as strength training. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, we're training, you know, your fast twitch fibers and we're training your strength in very, very short time periods. Um, but I still consider it as relatively non-specific, you know, strength training compared to whatever the action of the sport is. So again, when we go to a little bit more of a, of a flatter foot landing or where we're leading with the heel a little bit more, I think you tend to get less translation of the shin over the foot which probably unloads like the Achilles tendon a little bit, you get more, more, I would say, you know, you're distributing the same level of force or similar levels of force across the whole foot rather than all of it on the, on the forefoot. And you may end up with slightly low, longer contact times, but I mean, I'm looking at some numbers here. We're probably talking about the difference between like 180 milliseconds and 200 milliseconds. Either way, it's still way faster than anything you do in the gym. And either way, it's still slower than what you do when you're sprinting. Do you know what I mean? So like to me, it's a special strength exercise. So it's still it's still in that category. Um, and I think the, the value you're getting there is you are, you know, you're not getting that what can be sometimes quite extreme translation of the shin over the foot. You're getting that little bit more of an even force distribution across the foot. Um, and it probably also allows athletes to remain in slightly more kind of stable, strong, kind of stacked postures and positions when they are doing things like uh, bounding or repeat hurdle jumps, for example. What I would say is my gut feeling in terms of experience is that, again, with the exception of maybe athletes who have that extensive experience in athletics, you know, and they've had a very kind of long-term exposure to jumps and bounds and, and hopping and, 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 and bounding. And other athletes, I think, tend to default when you ask them to get off the ground quickly. You ask them to like bounce. You ask them to get hit, do a test and hit good RSI scores. I think a lot of them do default to that very kind of forefoot landing. And again, a bit like those research studies, if you cue them flat, it doesn't feel that good to begin with. Their scores get worse. Their contact times get a little bit longer. It feels a bit heavy. It feels a little bit high impact. But I think if you, you coach through that and coach out the other side of that, you end up with, I would say, uh, I would say like movement competency that's more robust, that's more adaptable, and it's probably more sustainable long term. So would you, would you go there if you were starting with an athlete tomorrow, would you go there straight away in terms of the flat heel, leading with the heel? Yeah, I think um, I think one of the first things I do is I, I would I I'd almost not always but almost always start with that more because again we might talk a little bit about training progressions so without getting into that right away generally we'd probably start with more uh, you might call it extensive or preparatory you know sub maximal 
plyometric work anyway. I think that's your opportunity to see what their default movement patterns are, what, you know, yeah, how do they execute the task you've given them within the constraints that you've given them? Um, and I think sometimes there you'll see people who, you know, it's probably, you know, probably actually can't stop their heel hitting the ground, aren't in control of that. You'll see people who want to stay on the forefoot excessively. And I think in that in those kind of lower level extensive lower intensity extensive plyometrics that's where it's quite it's much easier to coach that um, you know this is the type of thing that's been popularized by Altus you know the rudiment series type approach it's you know the, the kind of jumps in place circuits that um, you know Boo Schexnader that you've had on the podcast a couple of times would, uh, would, would, would preach about the importance of and they're really really good coaching opportunities because it's not it's not maximal intensity um, you've got loads of repetition you know like it's very hard to coach high-end plyometrics sometimes because you're doing such small volumes by the time you're ready to coach the right thing they're done so again those extensive phases you've got lots of repetition you've got relatively high volumes you've loads of opportunity for me anyway or I don't have an amazing coaching eye for this you've got loads of opportunity to actually watch see if that's a one-off or see if it's um see if it is uh, consistent across multiple reps and sets you've loads of opportunity to cue and it's very low risk to change something technically because you're tending to do it at low intensities or oftentimes we do it on softer surfaces like grass or tumbling mats or whatever so i think that's a good time to do it quite early in the process perfect well we've we've nailed the intensity we've nailed the um the categorizations let's move on to volume again nsca book there's things in there that people may or may not agree with in terms of uh, volume prescription what's your what's your thoughts on this um yeah so hopefully this is something that we do relatively well in the course and we give people hopefully there's a there's a there's a range but hopefully we give people you know a range of um plyometric training volume that they may think about operating within depending on which stage of training that they're in. Um, so we'll get to that kind of progression model maybe maybe next. Um, so in terms of volume, I guess that the, the Again, you look at some of the studies uh, or you look at some of the, even the position stands, like there's an NSCA position stand, for example, and they might, I don't know, they might talk about 150 foot contacts for athletes of different experience levels. Uh, there might be some research papers that look at, you know, high volume versus low volume plyometrics, for example. But again, if you look at some of those methodologies, a lot of the time they're not really differentiating between drop jumps or counter movement jumps or cone hops, you know, like activities that honestly they're as different as a back squat and a power clean. Do you know what I mean? Like when, you know, they're, they're probably more different if anything. So I think a lot of those plyometric training volumes that are out there, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with them. Again, they just tend not to be particularly granular. And again, the typical way they suggest is that, you know, beginners do this much and experienced athletes do more you know, a greater volume, for example. Again, I'm not against that principle. It obviously makes sense if you're strong, you're robust, you've got good training history, you probably have the capacity to do more. But again, like we spoke about, you know, with Mark Jarvis's, uh, some of his work and so him, some of his insights, you know, actually, maybe the, the more elastic and reactive you are, the more 
phenomenally high outputs you can put into a single set and actually maybe you need to be doing less you know like the same again if a if a, a donkey like me does the same exercise as, a, as an elastic you know thoroughbred they're doing a hell of a lot more for the same reps and sets um so again i think when we think about volume that the first thing i would think about is like what phase are we in and in terms of pr- progressing a plyometric training model I kind of think about four phases a kind of a foundation phase a development phase and then we really get into intensification which could be uh, more general or more functional the general stuff might be your drop jumps your repeat hurdle jumps you know again really trying to move the dial on um, the the underlying physiological kind of uh, qualities of the athletes or you're maybe functional and you're transfer focused high intensity plyometrics which might be a little bit more trying to match the biomechanical characteristics of the plyometrics to the sport or the sporting action that you're trying to improve so again i have maybe four phases of plyometric training or plyometric progression and i think your volume guidelines within each of those phases would be quite different obviously when we're talking about foundational or development work or again what people might more broadly might describe as extensive work it's a maximal you have high variation you can do a lot more work at the upper end you know in terms of intensity where we're really intensifying the work we do much smaller pockets smaller volumes of work so the for me, the I guess the, the influencing factors of plyometric volume. So again, what are the key things I'm thinking about which would dictate whether I'm doing a lot or a little in terms of volume would be, um, I guess, fundamentally, what phase of training am I in? Uh, and then outside of that, it would be, what is the intensity of the plyometrics I'm using? So like I mentioned before, I might broadly bundle my plyometrics into four, four tiers of increasing intensity. So if I'm using a high intensity plyometric exercise, then I'm gonna be dialing the volume down. And we mentioned already surface is important. If I'm doing extensive work on a soft, forgiving surface like grass or sand or a tumbling mat, then I'm gonna be, I know I can get away with doing more volume, more repetition because I want to build tissue tolerance. I wanna have more coaching opportunity. I wanna have more technical development. Um, I would say the variety or the range of different exercises you're using is another kind of influencing factor on volume. So if I'm doing high intensity plyometrics, but I'm only I'm choosing to just do one exercise, I'm going to do drop jumps. Let's say for example, I'm going to, I'm choosing to do drop jumps, and that's the only exercise I'm doing, and I'm doing three sets of six or you know three sets of eight with very long recoveries and high box heights. Um, I'm only doing a single exercise. I'm loading the the joints and the connective tissue in a very similar way repeatedly at very high intensities. I'm going to dial dial the volume down. If I'm exposing the athlete to three or four different exercises, I have variety of how the joints and the tissues are being loaded from exercise to exercise. Then I can probably get away with doing a little bit more volume across the total session. I don't mean more volume on every single exercise. Um, and then, I, like we said already, the, the, the athlete level is going to be important. Again, what has the athlete been previously exposed to? Have they built up? Have we established their kind of plyometric tolerance and their kind of training load, training volumes that are appropriate for them? 
and also what type of athlete are they? Are they that elastic, you know, greyhound who just bounces and springs along the ground? Are they a little bit more of a workhorse? Again, for that elastic athlete, although they might appear better suited for plyometrics, for true elastic plyometrics, I may actually be inclined to dial the volume down for them because their outputs are at such a high level. So again, the intensity of the exercises, the surface that we're performing it on, the variety of exercises used, the level of the athlete themselves, I think about each of them as kind of like the knobs on a stereo. So again, I'm turning them up or down depending on maybe what I'm thinking about or what I'm assessing in those different, uh, those across those different kind of factors. You'll remember the quote, I just know you're gonna remember the quote, Boo's quote about variety. And injury, injury yes. prevention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, variety is the mother of injury prevention, and I think it's it's a simple thing. Like, if you, if, you know, if you're playing, you know, dealing with rugby players, and you shuttle run them every day, and they're turning in the exact same way on the spot over and over again, you end up with groin issues, you end up with adductor issues, and um, if you expose them to a variety of stimulus, um, especially at sub-maximal level, obviously, you know, you're almost I think you're making them you know, more robust and more adaptable and you're stressing them in different planes of motion with different tempos and different intensities, but you're also not overloading the same pattern repeatedly. Now, there are times where you want to drive meaningful physical adaptation. And I think when you want to do that, sometimes it makes sense to pick one key exercise to do it for the right amount of volume at very, very high intensities and un- unashamedly focus on that, you know, with the blinkers on and get it really, really well done. But that to me is at the end of a long process, not the beginning. So the last thing, you've, you've flirted with it a few times, that the progression frameworks that we spoke about in the course, just to get a bit of an overview of those would be a really nice place to finish off, I think. Yeah, cool. Um, again, I've, I've put some of this stuff out in articles I've written before on social media and stuff and just my personal approach. Um, but again, it's I don't know if it's plagiarized from other people, if it's referenced to other people, if it's just maybe it's just common sense stuff. Um, but ultimately, you know, most people think about moving from you know, you know, increasing intensity and decreasing volume as we move towards a specific goal. A lot of people already think about extensive plyometrics and intensive plyometrics as their two categories or their two different approaches. And um, I probably just think about it in maybe uh, I would say like four four steps in a progression model. Um, and the first two steps probably are more in that extensive domain. Um, I would call them a foundational phase and a development phase. Foundational phase for me is like, some athletes may never do this. It might be too low level for them, or you might do it with them when they're 16 and you don't need to go back there very much in the future. Um, But for me, the foundational level work is really, you know, very, very low level, very low intensity, you know, uh, jumping, hopping, landing, skipping, very low intensity, very much sub-maximal. And effectively, you're just trying to help the athlete to learn the techniques, understand what stiffness, you know, pre-activation, what these simple kind of concepts feel like. Uh, And you're building their very basic level of tolerance to plyometrics. Um, again, the kind of stuff that goes well with this type of training, you could have people doing marching drills, ankling drills, building their, you know, yeah, foot, ankle, calf strength at the same time, intrinsic, you know, intrinsic kind of foot strength. You know, it's, it's really basic stuff. 
Um, I think in that development phase, that's probably more similar to what most people would think about when they think about extensive plyometrics. And again, here you're really building the volume tolerance. You know, again, it tends to not be maximal tends to be nowhere near maximal intensity work but we're basically we're establishing their plyometric training volume we're building volume tolerance uh, or i think you can use this phase to begin to build intensity tolerance too you know so here is where maybe some of your tier two plyometrics can come in you know your, your pogo jumps you know short contact times you can begin to intensify them a little bit uh, but you're probably not doing high intensity true plyometrics at this point so again foundation development and then for me you come into the intensification realm and i would tend to think about what i would call realization next again maybe going back to the verkashansky approach and some of his frameworks he might call some of this work your more general general true plyometrics so again it's it's stuff where we're trying to make physical adaptation physical changes we're not necessarily trying to overly match the dynamic correspondence or the biomechanical demands of the task so here we might be doing our repeat high hurdle jumps drop jumps might come into this phase if the athlete is ready for it and so that would be for me the realization phase and then not so much a progression more as an option running alongside that you would have what I would call maybe your your transfer phase and this is where you may actually be slightly diminishing the intensity of what you're doing compared to that realization phase and um, but you again you're probably trying to be a little bit more mindful of what is the physical or what is the maybe the technical change or, or influence or impact I'm trying to have in the sport uh, and what plyometrics might be best suited to make that difference. So these might be more, again, functional plyometrics, you could call them. For a sprinter working on stride length, it might be bounding, for example. Um, so that to me, it's, it's not quite a one, two, three approach. There'll always be overlap between these different phases. You know, when I'm working on general high intensity realization focused plyometrics, I might still keep in some low intensity um, extensive work in a different session in the week, or we're touching on some of that work as we intensify through a session. So again, it's never a one, if you know, it's never a one, two, three, four step method. It's, it's you know, just trying to work with a common sense progression, trying to think about what the athlete needs. And um, and again, as we intensify, we're thinking about, are we intensifying to really drive acute physical adaptation with realization methods? Or are we trying to intensify more through the dynamic correspondence or the biomechanical characteristics of the plyometrics that we're choosing? I think this will be my last question, but it was, it was one that we, I think we chatted about when you joined and Joel on that round table but it was jumping for jumpers and I'm just wanting to get your kind of off the cuff thoughts on that for those that are working with jump those that are jumping regularly in their sport netball basketball how would you view that would you like Boo mentioned keep that low level like foundational developmental progressions in there all the time knowing that they're doing the the, the 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 final phase day in day out anyway from a injury prevention point of view what what's your thoughts 
Yeah, I probably I'll try not to speak outside again where I feel like oh, my yeah, expertise is. And I haven't, you know, I don't work or haven't worked with high level jumpers, whether you're high jumpers or long jumpers or or you know basketball you mentioned there. But I think the principle. So again, I think, but I think the principles are the same. I think you've always got to think about like what is the athlete being exposed to in their sport practice? What are they being exposed to in the the elements of their training that you have little control over? Um, and then what can you expose them to in your domain, in the gym, in their physical preparation that might add some value, but not just double up on some of the some of the uh, stressors that they're already being exposed to. So again, my gut feeling there with, with, with what you've described is, you know, again, if you're dealing with athletes who have had long experiences with repetitive moderate to high intensity plyometric actions throughout their training week or throughout their long-term athletic development, then I wouldn't be as inclined to feel like I needed to build up their tolerance to this type of work, assuming that they're relatively tolerant to it and they're not breaking down all the time. And then, you know, so again, instead, what I'd be thinking about doing there is, okay, well, what are the high threshold methods that I can use that might actually be able to help them move the dial on some of the characteristics that matter most in their sport. You know what I mean? So again, maybe it's a sport like basketball where you, you, you're from observing training and talking to coaches and talking to the athletes. Maybe you have that observation that actually they're doing a huge volume of moderate intensity bounces and pings and, and jumps, but actually, because the sport places a constraint on them, they have very few exposures to the very high intensity work that might actually help them move the dial on some of their physical qualities. So in a case like that, you might keep in a small dosage, you know, every week or every 10 days of general high threshold, true plyometrics to try and, you know, keep some of that uh, elasticity and keep those kind of physical qualities moving in the right direction. But I'd probably be quite conservative and reluctant to add in volume if I felt there was a lot of moderate to low level volume in the day-to-day training activities. Perfect. Right. We've gone past the hour. So I've failed in my promise to keep to work to keep right. schedule by nine. But um anyone that wants to know more about you, your work, what you've got going on, where's the best place? I guess Twitter is probably the only place unless you call to my house. So uh, at, at Eamon Flanagan, I'm on Twitter. I'm not really on any other platforms. Um, so yeah, hopefully, like in terms of plyometrics, I put put musings and ramblings and, and stuff like that up there all the time. And a lot of what we've talked about, whether it's that four-step plyometric model, uh, whether it's, you know, differences between extensive and intensive stuff, whether it's, you know, uh, the maybe the influencing factors around plyometric uh, intensity or plyometric training volume a lot of this stuff is sometimes very can be difficult to describe here but it's very easy to visualize in a picture or a table or a chart and hopefully there's 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 lots of resource there that uh when people see it they'll say oh okay i kind of get what he was talking about now which is the, the whole reason why the course has been put together and it was a it was a it was great to get you and and see you doing your thing um in front of the camera and uh yeah, with a with an athlete as well. So, like I say, hopefully second quarter of the year, we'll get it out. See how it lands. I'm sure people love it. Sounds good. 
But Sounds Eamon, good to me. Thank you very much for joining me on a uh, late on a Thursday evening, and I'll let you get back to it. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Rob. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 484 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to Eamon for giving up his time and coming on to discuss the true plyometrics. And as Eamon mentioned a couple of times in the episode, I've got a course coming up that is just in the editing process. will be launched later this year on this exact topic and we'll go into real depth onto how you can program and coach true plyometrics. So big thanks to Valve Performance, Play, Hydro and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. I look forward to chatting to you next time.